0: Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and today I'm thrilled to present our next guest, Dr. Sarah Bell and Professor Rachel Collis, who are joining us from the UK. We are lucky to have the opportunity to discuss viscoastometric point of care testing and postpartum hemorrhage with them. Besides publishing some outstanding papers that we will mention today, Professor Collis and Dr. Bell are part of a national collaborative called the Obstetric Bleeding Strategy for Wales, and have recently received funding to study the introduction of a postpartum care bundling including viscoastometric point of care as a quality improvement project into 36 maternal units across the UK. Welcome Dr. Bell and Professor Collis. It is a pleasure to have you here with us today.
1: Thanks very much for the lovely invitation, Antonio. Yeah, and thank you very much.
2: Very excited.
0: Certainly, um, you and your research team have acquired tremendous knowledge in terms of the coagulation profile of perturians, uh, given your research experience during postpartum hemorrhage as demonstrated in your article published in Ijoa 2019, titled Management of Postpartum Hemorrhage from Research into Practice, a Narrative Review. Would you please give our audience uh, the key points from that excellent narrative review?
1: Okay, so I'm gonna start, and it's Dr. Bell speaking first off. So um, the narrative review really set the scene and described some of this sequential research publications, papers, studies that we'd been undertaking based um, out of our postpartum hemorrhage research group in Cardiff. And um, one of the Sentinel papers was a paper that we called, a study that we called OBS-1, which was a prospective observational study of postpartum coagulopathy where um, we were looking at consecutive women who had bleeds of a litre to a litre and a half who were recruited into the study. And we were looking at their coagulation profiles and also um, performing Rotem point of care testing vascoelastic hemostatic assays. The clinicians were actually blinded to the Rotem results and we were starting to understand and describe postpartum hemorrhage coagulopathy in more detail. But in this narrative review, what we really found was that actually, while we were starting to understand the coagulopathy better, um, during this part of the the review, we found that our outcomes in our maternity unit were unchanged while we were doing this study. Then went on and did a further study, which we called OBS 2, which was um, published in the BJA in 2017, which was a prospective multi-center study using some of the learning we'd had from that OBS-1 paper and putting it then into practice. So using the Rotem to direct clinical care. Again, in women who were bleeding a liter or with um, a liter and a half, we were enrolling them. And then either if they had um, a FibTem A5 of Uh, less than 15 and bleeding ongoing, we were then randomizing them either to fibrinogen concentrate or placebo. But what this narrative review really did was describe the fact that what we realized then as we were starting to do OBS2 and then look at the maternity unit outcomes in Cardiff was that things were starting to change. And we started to see a reduction in the proportion of women requiring a red cell transfusion, and this fell by 30%. And then a massive reduction in the women having the really big bleeds requiring five or more units of red cell transfusion, which fell by 80%. And yet actually, when we looked at the research data, only a minority of these patients actually had problems with their clotting and changes in the way that we were managing their coagulopathy. So in the majority of patients, these um, outcomes were changing, but it wasn't due to coagulation changes. And this is because whilst undertaking these studies, we were changing the way we looked after our women in a much bigger scale. So, to enter women into research studies in postpartum hemorrhage, you've got to have a defined standardized entry criteria. And so, in OBS2, what we'd started to do was measure blood loss or quantify blood loss, as I've seen it described in many of the American papers. And so, every woman, as soon as they'd given birth, would have their blood loss quantified using gravimetric and volumetric methods. And then Following on from this, then we were changing the way that we were describing a blood loss, moving from um, a trickle or an ooze to an actual volume of blood loss measured. And then we were standardizing when our clinicians were coming to the bedside because particularly the anesthetists were there to undertake the point of care test at a litre or more. And so we were then. but they weren't weren't just doing the tests, they were also there with the obstetricians bringing the clinical decision-making earlier to the bedside. And we realised as we were starting to look at the results of the OBS2 papers, that actually what had happened was a much more global change in the way that we were managing postpartum hemorrhage. And it appeared to us we were undertaking a care package. We then started undertaking a literature search and then um, actually speaking with collaborators uh, over in America, particularly the A1 group, and realising that this idea of a postpartum hemorrhage care bundle was something that was already being designed in America as well. Um, and that we actually had many common themes around um, risk assessment, quantification of blood loss and escalation, and that these were actually really crucial in managing postpartum hemorrhage. And then in that minority, say around 5% of women who have a coagulopathy at a liter or more, we were doing something different with viscoelastic hemostatic assays and fibrinogen and fibrinogen concentrate testing. And so this narrative review really brought together those themes of some of those research studies, but actually how the care bundle had come out of those research studies.
0: Yeah, that that is great. And, I, and you mentioned a couple of things that I think are extremely important for our audience to understand. And you mentioned one of them, it's how difficult actually is to do research uh, for postpartum hemorrhage. So I think your team needs to be commended for their amazing work they've put out so far. Um You mentioned a couple of great other points. And, you know, maybe if you can talk to us a little bit more uh, details regarding how do you decide which patients get tested and when do you start getting concerned that a patient may develop uh, coagulopathy?
2: In the bundle that that Sarah has uh, described, Um, The bundle means that the clinicians must attend the bedside by a litre at the latest Um, and part of our protocol is that we do the testing, the viscoelastic testing at a litre or earlier for clinical concern. Um, The interesting thing about this is that actually at around a litre or slightly earlier, only about 5% of the women um, will have that early, Uh, coagulopathy where you see this early drop in fibrinogen and then as bleeding um, progresses even if the clotting is normal at the outset of the bleeding uh, let's say due to um, uncontrolled uh, atony or trauma uh, that's difficult to control surgically then as time goes on um, by about two and a half liters about 17 percent of your postpartum hemorrhage population Will have um, a low fibrinogen, and we define that as as less than two grams per liter, which is um, what we consider our a sort of therapeutic treatment option. But it's very important to realise that that means that ninety five percent of the tests that you're doing, um, the tests will be normal, and that is actually part of the bundle because once you have a normal test. Um, you must tell your obstetric and midwifery colleagues that it's um, the causes are atony trauma or retained tissue which um, requires uh, an obstetric action um, and coagulation products are not going to be helpful. But what we found last year um, in an, another study um, which um, followed on from OBS2 uh, we called it OBS+, and it was published last year in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis um 2022, was that of the, of, of the around 5% or slightly less in our cohort um, that had this early, uh, early um, coagulopathy, all, in all of these cases, the coagulopathy was caused by uh, severe um, hyperfibrinolysis. So, it appears that this is a, um, an interesting and, as we described it, a unique finding in obstetric uh, bleeding as a, a pathogenesis. Um, and from our data, it seems that many features of this are very, very similar to those seen in amniotic fluid embolus. But none of the patients in, um, in our study had diagnosis of an amniotic fluid embolus half of them had um severe abruption um many of many of those cases were associated with uh, fetal demise so clearly the most severe end of eruption but half the cases had no um other particular cause they were recorded in our database as uh, trauma atony and retained tissue in equal numbers So this is the major problem, that although these types of early severe coagulopathies are uncommon, and they are associated clearly with severe abruption and amniotic fluid embolus, some um, occur unpredictably, and outcomes can be very poor if you don't uh, immediately recognize and uh, treat aggressively, both with um, fibrinogen concentrate, and we use... um, tranexamic acid um, because of the hyperfibrinolysis seen in these patients.
0: Uh, that, that was great. Thank you so much. I want to highlight that, as you mentioned, the cause of the bleeding may dictate how quickly fibrinogen will be consumed. The excellent web plots Dr. Green and some of your research team showed in their 2016 British Journal of Hematology article is an amazing visual attestation of these. Now, What should be our target fibrinogen and what is your target um, fibrinogen level uh, in your protocols?
1: We know that the term flouse fibrinogen laboratory level is between four and six grams per liter. And in the non-pregnant range would be between two to four. So we're aware that there's a um, pregnancy-related elevation in fibrinogen levels when you get to a term pregnancy. Then when it comes to what your intervention should be for um, treating low fibrinogens, there have been some important studies over the last 10 years. So the FibPPH study, which was published by Wickerslow in 2015, randomized women to either placebo or two grams of fibrinogen concentrate at about a litre and a half's blood loss, but nearly all of their women had fibrinogen levels of over four. And what they therefore found, which is really relevant to our maternity population, was that there was no evidence for using fibrinogen when levels are above four. So what we could um, conclude from that was that we don't need higher levels than four for our maternity population but we then needed a subsequent studies to then um, inform us as to whether the intervention point should be two or three and this um, study was undertaken by our group called the obs 2 study which was published in the bja in 2017 and here we looked at an intervention point between two and three it's interesting because this study was an interventional randomized control trial using Rotem and um, fibrinogen concentrate to treat uh, uh, fibtems of less than 15. It's often seen as a negative study because we found no statistically significant difference between care in women who had terms of great, um, who had received fibrinogen concentrate or placebo when we used an intervention point of 15. Actually, what this study really showed was that above two, it's safe to withhold FFP and fibrinogen concentrate, but below two, in this study, in a pre-specified subgroup of only seven patients, there was a suggestion of improvement, but because there were so few patients, we were unable to actually show a statistically significant difference. And so based on these two sentinel studies, our guidelines would suggest that two is that intervention point for vibranogen concentrate. And that is what is now used in the um, UK published guidance.
0: Thank you so much for that. Um, n- now, I, I do have a, a question, maybe a clarification for our audience. You mentioned a Rotem A5, uh FIPTEM of 15. To what does that correspond in uh, plasma? I know, I know it's a not a linear correlation, but w- what is the uh, approximate uh, plasma levels with uh, FibTem A5 or 15?
1: Um, you're absolutely right. The FibTem and the fibrinogen levels are not a cl- an absolute linear correlation. And the correlation coefficient in most studies in the automated devices is around 0.6 to 0.7. Uh Having said that, when you look at your Fib10 results, approximately a Fib10 of 15 is going to roughly correspond to around a Fibrinogen level of three, and a Fib10 of 10 is roughly going to correspond to a Fibrinogen level of around two. But of course, there's quite a wide variation in this.
0: Thank you for that clarification. Now, where does the interest for viscoelasticity point of care comes? When does your team decide we should be looking into this? This seems like a good idea.
2: In about 2011, we became interested in fibrinogen because we were using it as a as a rescue treatment for very severe, very advanced um, postpartum hemorrhage, um, and we noticed that clinically speaking, um, we were. Uh, seem to reduce uh, bleeding at the bedside by giving fibrinogen concentrate Um, because it was quite clear that both from our occasional use of fibrinogen concentrate and the work of people like Wickerslow that it's clearly the understanding that giving fibrinogen concentrate is either unnecessary or often leads to delay and late treatment um, and the need to be proactive and provide early treatment. So clearly a a bedside test that can be um, run on our maternity unit um, and with basic level training around use and interpretation um, of of the graphs that it produces and the validation of the work that we've done um, the rapid turnaround time of usually under 15 minutes uh, allows us to um, rapidly uh, transfuse patients in most need of transfusion and, and um, equally and uh, it's important really um, to um, not transfuse patients that uh, don't need fibrinogen concentrate or, or plasma
0: yeah, I agree 100%. I think that that is a it's a great point and I think that viscoelasticometric uh, testing or viscoelastic testing um it's amazing in the sense that although only 5% of the patients will actually show a coagulopathy, for those 5%, it makes a huge difference in terms of outcomes and how quickly we can resuscitate them. So the the, the study is relatively quick and fast to do, so it's definitely worth uh at the time. So what are some of the limitations or potential drawbacks of point-of-care viscoelastic testing for postpartum hemorrhage?
1: Yeah, so I think there's still a number of areas that we're unclear about the role and the interpretation of the viscoelastic testing in the context of postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, particularly, um, the area of thrombocytopenia is one that we as a group have yet to identify um, VHA-based triggers for a transfusion. The reason for this really is because um, thrombocytopenia during postpartum hemorrhage is actually even less common than the hypofibrinogenemia that we see. And so, to capture sufficient women in studies to be able to then inform um, um, evidence-based algorithms is very difficult. And to date, we have not provided sufficient data to be able to inform platelet transfusion. In addition, your full blood count usually comes back very quickly, at least based in the UK. We can get a full blood count turned around within 10 minutes. And so to date, we haven't been using our VHA to inform platelet triggers. The other area that I think is one that still needs further research is the xtem ten based clotting time trigger for FFP transfusion. What we found in um, a paper describing the sensitivity and specificity of Rotem in um, diagnosing hypofibrinogenemia and coagulopathy was that if you have a patient with a very low fibrinogen and you transfuse the fibrinogen, they often have a, a prolonged XTEM clotting time at the same time. And that will shorten as you transfuse the fibrinogen. And so how you then diagnose uh, clotting factor deficiencies other than fibrinogen is an area that we still have insufficient data really to inform our algorithms. And so our algorithms for FFP transfusion are based on um, Mm -hmm. uh, standard deviation around the norm, rather than the bulk of evidence that we have for fibrinogen. I think the other area that is an issue for our viscoelastic hemostatic assays at the moment is that they are complex devices that are expensive and there's still more work to be done to understand the appropriate timing of testing um, to um, ensure that we have a cost benefit and the, um, that's really one of the key drivers for us doing the l 2 study in England will be England, Scotland and Northern Ireland in fact is to understand um, the cost implications of widespread rollout of BHA testing.
0: Yeah thank you for that and actually thank you for bringing that clinical peril of the prolongation of the x stem. I think that is actually very important, and I've I've seen it personally. When you replace the fibrinogen, you see that extem shortening. And why it's why is that so important? It's actually because um, another great study coming from your team that theoretical mathematical model that shows that if you were to look at that extem and say, oh, we need to give FFP. If you were to do that, you may actually dilute even furthermore that crucial fibrinogen that it's what the patient really needs so when you see that xtem that it's prolonged and your 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 FIPTEM a5 or your FIPTEM is really low the the clinician should actually concentrate on replacing fibrinogen that that is the key there
2: yeah i'll just i just add to, to that actually um that it, it's not just the fibrinogen with plasma that you might be diluting. But um, going back to the paper in the journal of, um, of thrombosis and hemostasis that we published, factor eight and von Willebrand factor and some of the other factors actually go up in those early parts of the uh, the bleed uh, because of the stress response. And therefore, if you then are giving early plasma, you may well be diluting Fibrinogen and also other um, clotting factors, which you know clearly thrombin generation goes through the von Willebrand and the factor VIII uh, pathways. So it's it could actually be a, a, a double negative.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Now, as I, I was I mentioning before, uh, doing research in uh, in terms of postpartum hemorrhage, it's it's, an, it's a very difficult task, right? And I can only imagine not only doing research for obstetric hemorrhage, but actually getting to institute viscolastomagic testing for 36 units in the United Kingdom. That must be a magnificent experience. So would you uh, quickly give us a brief uh, review of your experience in this obstetric bleeding strategy, strategy collaboration?
1: Okay, so the 36 units are starting to give me palpitations, and that's the study that we're just about to start in February of next year. And you're absolutely right. So, we're going to be rolling out the entire care bundle that we've developed and um, run within Wales now since 2017 into 36 further units in the UK as a stepped wedge cluster RCT with embedded. Uh, Uh, psychological, uh, economic and process evaluation studies. Uh, And this is a great opportunity for us to really tease out the impact of this care bundle incorporating viscoelastic enostatic assays. Um, in terms of our experience to date, so our um, clinical experience of rolling out this care bundle is based in our, um, and embedded in our experience of rolling it out across Wales, which is a principality of 3 million people. Um, and we roll the care package out to 12 obstetric units over a two year period. Um, and. This experience was absolutely invaluable and acted as the pilot study for the now much larger study that we're about to embark on. I think the absolute nub of rolling this entire care package out across Wales was understanding the importance of multi-professional working and multi-professional representation in the project um, at a national level and in a local level. And multi-professional engagement, ensuring that we had midwifery, obstetric, anaesthetic, and haematology buy-in, understanding, and um, enthusiasm from the for the project from the start and throughout, and. Um, ensuring that we were risk assessing, measuring the blood loss, since that really was the crux of the project. If you don't start measuring your blood loss, escalating and then bringing your clinicians to the bedside, no one will be doing the viscoelastic hemostatic assays to then change the way you manage the coagulopathy. And it was this entire chem bundle that we rolled out and in a quality improvement setting that we saw the changes in maternal outcome in in regard to a reduction in postpartum hemorrhage progression and a reduction in red cell transfusion. And it is this that we are now going to test in the major step wedged RCT. That,
0: that is phenomenal. And I'm uh, looking forward to the results of, of, of this study. Now, you've had the opportunity to actually uh, run the OPS1, OPS2. Ops so you've been able to actually kind of compare what the massive transfusion protocol standalone can do, and what can viscoelastometric testing can do for our patients. Some clinicians may actually argue that viscoelastometric testing may be time-consuming because, as we mentioned, only five percent of our patients will have a coagulopathy. Um, what is your experience? What has been your experience? Between comparing massive transfusion protocol one to one to one ratio to actually uh guided uh, you know guided management for transfusion
2: there are a, a number of different um parts to this. The first thing is that um if you're using formulaic treatment or estimated blood loss, then large numbers of women will be going will be receiving um, plasma and platelets that are unnecessary. We've already talked about some of the disadvantages of plasma. You need to transfuse very large amounts of plasma to raise. Um, raise fibrinogen, let's say from 0.5 up to 2. Um, and in cases of dilution or coagulopathy that you see later on, um, you may still be diluting other uh, plasma factors such as von Willebrand factor and factor 8. Uh, platelets are hardly ever used. Um, and the, I think the biggest thing that we saw once we really implemented this and the focused use of fibrinogen concentrate was that, first of all, the women who were uh, were, were treated early, were observed to have low fibrinogens early, uh, didn't progress to massive hemorrhage. So in our institute, uh, we've had um, v- virtually no lady who has come into maternity with a very low fibrinogen who has gone on to have massive uh, transfusion or hysterectomy, where previously you would see these bleeds become absolutely catastrophic. The other major difference was that um, restricting our our uh, fluid, um, a balance. So we tend to have a restrictive use of crystalloids. We transfuse blood based on point of care testing, hemoglobins and a balance with that and and ongoing lactate. Um, and we barely see any lady develop any f- form of pulmonary edema. So we haven't had an admission to our intensive care unit for pulmonary edema uh, in I would say eight or nine years ever since we've started this protocol. So it's made a huge difference to pulmonary edema and our admission to intensive care because you're restricting uh, fluid volumes and just giving fluid to those women who really need it. So that's by far the biggest, by biggest, biggest um, change.
0: Yeah, that, that is an amazing outcome. And I think it speaks volumes to, you know, the the benefits that of using viscoestometric testing, the information you get from them, it's extremely important to the patient. Um, so... Is cryoprecipitate still used in the United Kingdom?
2: Cryoprecipitate in the United Kingdom is still the most common concentrated form of um, of uh, fibrinogen available. And this will be a big change in OBS UK when we roll it out because uh, m- m- I should imagine most of the units will never have used fibrinogen concentrate. So, so cryoprecipitate, probably if you're going to use any formulaic um, treatment, um, you should remove plasma and include um, prior precipitate. And I might just add on to Rachel's
1: comment, just to say that one of the reasons we've really um, found Fibrinogen Concentrate extremely useful is the speed at which you can give it once you've identified hypofibrinogenemia on your viscoelastic chemostatic assay, because it can be brought straight from our blood banks, reconstituted and given immediately. So we can actually identify and then treat hypofibrinogenemia at the bedside within um, within 30 minutes. Uh, the challenge with cryoprecipitate is that it needs to be thawed and so automatically delays that process. Having said that, there has... Been some um, work looking at using cryoprecipitate instead of fibrinogen concentrate to treat hypofibrinogenemia, and there is more work to be done there to understand the implications that the additional clotting factors that are in the cryoprecipitate, and whether factor thirteen actually is a useful adjunct. Um, But the study uh, that was published a couple of years ago in Anesthesia, looking at this as a pilot study, found exactly the problem that the defrosting meant that there was a big delay in actually incrementing fibrinogen levels at the bedside, which is why fibrinogen concentrate is such a, um, offers such a useful um, adjunct in terms of timeliness of application.
0: Yeah, that is, that is great. Thank you so much for that clarification. And and yeah, I mean, I think fibrinogen concentrate definitely in terms of timing uh, beats cryoprecipitate, but as you mentioned, there are some experts that argue that the other factors that are present in the cryoprecipitate, bring a lot of coagulation to the to the table, and it actually makes the uh, coagulation profile even better for the patients. Now, I I think that we've had an amazing talk. Uh, I would like to end with Dr. Bell and Professor Collins' top five recommendations for management of postpartum hemorrhage.
2: The first one I'd like to just mention is anticipate although a lot of postpartum hemorrhage is unpredictable particularly emergency deliveries both uh, vaginal and uh, cesarean deliveries are associated with high rates of hemorrhage and therefore they should only be undertaken in the maternity units that have uh, blood uh, available and clearly high risk situations like placenta previa and accreta should only be done um, in units that um, have the the, the correct facilities. Yeah. And then our next recommendation really would be around recognition
1: and uh, recognizing when blood loss is visible and then measuring it, and or when it is not visible, for example, in cases of concealed bleeding in abruption, um, in which case um, clinical concern would be your trigger to then undertake
2: your point of care testing looking for that coagulopathy. So having recognised that there's a postpartum haemorrhage, um, there was a, a, a Cochrane review from a few years ago saying that just measuring blood loss doesn't improve your out outcome comes. Um, So uh, the measurement of blood loss needs to um, be done at the time, uh, quantitatively and accumulatively, um, as the passage of the postpartum haemorrhage Uh, takes place and there needs to be key moments um, in the accumulation of blood loss where you escalate treatment. Initially, uh, between three and 500 mils after vaginal birth, that might just be a second dose of a uterotonic, rubbing the uterus inspecting for tears etc, inspecting the placenta but very quickly from 500 to a litre there has to be a clear escalation of both therapies and also as we've mentioned a number of times who then attends the bedside. And in all our algorithms, um, the whole of the multidisciplinary team should be by the bedside and that includes a senior midwife, an obstetrician and an anaesthetist by a one litre measured blood loss or earlier for clinical concern. And then our fourth recommendation would really be then around diagnosis and treatment,
1: which need to happen in parallel. So at that litre's blood loss, when the entire multiprofessional team are there, or earlier if you have a very low weight woman um, because her plasma volume will be reduced, um, we would advocate undertaking the point of care testing Um, And then in the minority of patients, really only that 5%, um, coagulation, resuscitation will be required. Whereas in the majority, resuscitation is going to require multi-professional intervention, including medical management of uterine atony and surgical interventions of uterine atony, tears, Surgical bleeding and/or evacuation of the uterus, and using the VHA to enable active communication between multi-professional teams is really invaluable at this stage.
2: Yeah, so we've so we're we're going to um, uh, finally talk about resuscitation. We've talked a lot about resuscitation, identifying those women with a low fibrinogen um, and treating them as quickly and as urgently as possible. Uh, we haven't talked about red cell transfusion, but point of care um hemoglobin monitoring um with a paired lactate um is important and um resuscitating um volume with uh clear fluid resuscitation um and blood withholding. Uh, coagulation products, if it's not necessary. Um, and then, uh, if bleeding is ongoing due to some major trauma, or often, as we know, uh, conditions such as Previa or Accreta, then. Um, Wait until uh, the fibrinogen falls below the the treatment threshold to replace fibrinogen. Um, and in the case it's a very massive uh, blood loss between four and five litres, the consideration of uh, plasma, because it, we do know that it's at around this level, depending on uh, the size of the patient, that the other clotting factors um, will become. Um, uh, deplete. So our top five would be anticipate,
1: recognize, escalate, diagnose and treat and then resuscitate.
0: That is an amazing five recommendations for the management of postpartum hemorrhage. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking out of your time uh to, to be able to be here to discuss with us these, uh, the, the, the use of visculastometric testing for postpartum hemorrhage. Already looking forward to your results from your upcoming study uh, and any actually any study coming out from your institution. Um, thank you so much for everything you've put out there uh, for our obstetric anesthesia community.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Antonio. And just to highlight to all of your um, fellows and trainees, um, we're always looking for collaborations and um, uh, welcoming um, interest from around the globe. And you're all welcome to contact us via our NHS email addresses, which Antonio I'm sure will be able to share with anyone who might be interested.